Hey, good morning. Welcome to another edition of our Cannabis Talk Show. I'm Nick. I'm joined as always by Mike and Francesca. And uh, first things first today, we had a, a, a little bit of a change after some uh, meetings and, and some research and some, some really hard thinking. And we're presenting you with a new show, so to speak. Francesca, would you like to talk a little bit about uh, a change that we've made recently? Yeah, sure. So we just want to let everybody know that we have officially renamed uh, this cannabis talk show to Infused. Uh, we were formerly naming it Can We Talk with two ends, And um, upon seeing that that name was already being used in a couple places, we're determined to be originals. So we put our brains together and came up with Infused, a cannabis talk show. So this will be the first episode where we are referring ourselves to as Infused and all the ones moving forward, we plan to do the same. So welcome to Infused. Absolutely. Sweet name. <laughs> it is a sweet name. So a, a very uh, a warm welcome to everybody. Thanks so much for checking us out again. And everybody that, that has uh, been kind enough to go and hit the subscribe button on our YouTube channel, we certainly appreciate it. Uh, full disclosure here, we're recording this before uh, November 3rd. So we're recording this before, uh, I don't know if, if you guys have heard, Mike, Francesca, we're, we're having an election here in the United States in a couple of weeks. Um, what? Yeah, yeah. It's gotten, it's getting a little bit of coverage uh, in certain places. <laughs> no, honestly, the, most of us are walking around like punch drunk boxers. We just look like we've had the, the hell beaten out of us with, with the uh, campaign and, and this election. And the the attempt, I don't know if it's good or bad, uh, that campaigns are making right now to change minds uh, to, in order to get votes. So we thought we'd make that a, uh, the focal point of our, of our uh, show today because changing minds in the cannabis space is, is incredibly important. I think it's not within the space, it's the people outside the space. And it's important every so often to kind of take a look at what we're doing and see if we're effective at all when we're trying to change the minds of people that don't agree with us. But there's no better platform, there's no better thing to study, I think, uh, than, than the realm of politics. Uh, you know, campaigns that are victorious and campaigns that, that fall short of the victory. So as I came in here today, I wanted to talk to Mike, I wanted to talk to Francesca about effective campaigning, because if, if a campaign's effective, they've changed minds uh, on, on, a, on, a, on a huge level. So in a, in a most basic way, and Mike, let me start with you. What, what's effective campaigning to you? <laughs> effective political campaigning is... I think an impossible answer because <laughs> I'm not sure. It's an really, oxymoron. <laughs> it really is. I, mean, I, I think about like what campaigning is and it seems to me there's so much of it. That's the same now that it was 200 years ago. Politicians walking around, shaking hands, smiling, kissing babies and you know, all kinds of stuff like that. There's the, obviously the political mudslinging which is always rel you know, a big part of politics that some people really love. And it, but for me, it's a huge turnoff because I just think it's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, you know, the political advertising and, and whatnot, yards and the sign, TV commercials, radio commercials, all that stuff. So I feel like the vast majority of politics is in campaigning is that. And what's effective? I don't know. I mean, because... I feel like what happens for me with politics and campaigning is that 
it's almost like um, the person that acts the classiest and has the most dignity is the one that eventually wins me over. But unfortunately, it's I feel like it's a, a, a scenario where it's the least common denominator and everybody kind of reduces themselves to lower and lower levels as the campaign goes on. And for me personally, it, it's just a turnoff and, and I don't really appreciate the the art of campaigning, so to speak. <laughs> Maybe somewhat of a lost art. I mean, we just, we just lived through, I, they're calling it a debate, Lincoln Douglas, it was not. Uh, but I mean, <laughs> you, you talk about- And that's talk- a good example. That's the stuff that turns me off. Is like I go into it with like kind of a perspective of who I think I like, and then they both act like dumbasses. And it's like, come on, somebody <laughs> step up. Well, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And we, it, in this- we wait for someone to step up, but it's, it, I mean, that's part of the frustration too. Is there something that's more effective than, than others for you, Francesca, as far as a campaign speaking to you? I feel like campaigning is, we have to look at what the purpose of it is. And the purpose is to, I think at least maybe twofold. One is to align an existing base. And so to move from, primaries where um, a a political party is fragmented and voting for their favorite primary candidate. And then you have a lot of losers and only one winner in each primary. So you have to then somehow galvanize, galvanize your base around the winner of your party. And I think that kind of campaigning has some effectiveness in it in the, the same, I guess, like-minded people, are talking to each other through the differences that they have. So if you were um, feeling the burn and Biden wins the primary, there was for, I think for a good time, a big divide between Bernie supporters and Biden supporters. And now we have to somehow move all of those Bernie supporters or Warren or Kamala or whoever else and move them to Biden. And so I think those conversations, that messaging can be super specific enough. And it is about, hey, listen, this is who the winner is. This is the closest to what you wanted. So let's back this person. I think there's effective messaging in that. But when you look at a presidential campaign between a two, in a two-party system, I don't know what's effective for people that have already decided who their candidate is. Maybe there's some effective campaign tools for undecided voters. And I think that's who it's really about targeting is people who are on the fence or maybe don't align with a party, you know, a, a down the ticket kind of voter every time. They are actually looking for what they're standing for. Unfortunately, I feel like at least in my voting lifetime, that erodes over time and it becomes more about who has the most memorable slogan who can um who has the bigger base on hope or fear you know these platforms become very broad and that's what doesn't work for me it's like i don't you can say things that a lot of people agree with and that's kind of a big turnoff for me because i want to i want to get into the specifics what are you about what are you going to do that's different than everybody else including the people you ran against in the primary and the person you're running against in the actual election so the long answer to that <laughs> is um effective campaigning happens for undecided voters i guess but not for me so i don't feel qualified necessarily to say what's effective and what's not because if you're talking talking about me it's like not much once my mind's made up 
You know what you said that I really liked was about undecided voters really being the target of that. And I think where the candidates have gotten really, really good is manipulating the media and feeding them sound bites so that now the media has something that they're basically using as clickbait. And I see it everywhere, whether it's on live television, on mainstream news outlets, or whether it's on social media, you know, the news center is, you know, they're based on having this ratings and clickbait type thing. So I feel like the candidates have gotten really good at kicking out these little sound bites that now become the foundation of, of their um, kind of their messaging and hopefully attract the undecided voter. Or repel the decided voter in a way, because uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, either it could go both ways. And I think the media is a huge factor, of course, but I think it's interesting, Mike, that you said that campaigns have gotten really good at creating sound bites. Yes. And I think the media has gotten almost adept to an unfortunate level of creating those sound bites out of and, and making a platform out of a comment. And, mm-hmm. and that is a huge problem to me because it's not truly reflective of what a candidate was trying to do, or you take things out of context and right. you blow them to, um, you know, gargantuan proportions and suddenly it's like out of control it's this runaway train so it's never been about that oh until it the media decided it was and then everybody jumped on and that's where they're getting the information so they said yeah and that's my whole beef with media in any situation whether it's politics or a colin kaepernick situation i mean it's all um easily manipulated in the narrative controlled by media and that's and people that don't really want to look into it or think about it they'll just take that and swallow the bait and run with it headline readers and Mm -hmm. and retweeters and it's about um i feel like with social media it's also become this place where it's a race to see or to show off how informed you are without actually being informed. So you're trying to (laughs) share the headline or the article that you didn't read past the headline and didn't understand. And then as people comment on your status and you get into comment wars and crap like that, you can do your Google search and your, you know, fortunately there's enough stuff out there and confirmation bias is on your side to back your, your position, your, your candidate, your whatever. Um, and you don't have to do it in real time. You don't have to actually critically think through a conversation. You can just Google your way to confirming your own beliefs and not bother listening or learning even. Yeah, it's, you know, the media and social media's role in this is really interesting because when I was trying to, I think I was talking with, with you guys a couple of days ago, and I'm, I'm trying to look back on the last election that I thought was quote unquote normal. Please don't blast me on that one. I know exactly what I said. Um, and I, I wanted to go back 20 years and then we had our, our hanging chads. And then I thought the first election that I took part in, in voting, uh, we had a three-way there keep your mind out of the gutter. We had Perot, <laughs> we had uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, we had the, um, uh, and we had Bill Clinton in that one. And I'm, I'm going back in my mind and I'm like, how, I, I wonder what that would have been like if we had social media and we had the, we had the three-way race and how, yeah. how you would have to really see who manipulated that particular platform well enough to pull people in. Because, uh, I mean, you said it yourself. You just find, you Google, you find whatever you already believe, and then you just ride it into oblivion because, hey, look, I'm sharing this meme, and I don't care what you think, but Freedom Patriot Eagle Rider 71 totally agrees with me. 
That's what it's become. It's become really awful. So when I look at when I look at things like effective campaigning, I, I think that where you guys, the world that you come from, you say, well, an effective campaign has to run just like an effective marketing uh, strategy, or or an effective sales strategy. So when I see people try to employ those things, who's using social social media correctly? Who's using advertising in the most uh, engaging method? Who's uh, you know are people bringing influencers into the mix. And I I don't know if if, if one party is doing it better than the other, but you do have to give points where those points are, are, you know, are due, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So in that sense, if I'm running for office, Francesca, what do I have to do to lose your vote? To lose (laughs) my vote, you have to (laughs) shout simple slogans at me and um, that have no substance behind them or very thin substance behind them. But the more you shout, uh, the faster I turn and walk away. And also if you fear monger, if you fear monger, I'm probably gone. Now, um, you know, it also depends on who's running because we, it seems like we always have an incumbent and then a new candidate. And so their campaigns should be very different in that a new candidate is campaigning on promises of what it could be and of change of the existing status quo. And an incumbent should be, I would imagine, running on a record and running on results that have already been produced. And so it should be very different of like, I'm going to give you more of what exists. And um, and in this campaign, we have I feel like something very different. Um, we definitely have the new candidate saying, yeah, we're going to end this right now. This is not going to continue the way it is. Um, but then the incumbent, I don't see a lot of Trump running on his record. I hear him shouting a lot and saying simple things loudly with very thin substance. And as long as they're repeatable, as long as they're loud enough, I guess it's, believed by people, um, that's, that's when I turn and run the other way. And that and any, any kind of hate or any kind of, if you're not paying attention to the most marginalized, the most um, at risk, the, mo- the, the minorities of your constituents, and if you aren't addressing the underdogs and you're not talking about how you can make life better for everyone and not just the people that look like you, are like you, agree with you, then I don't want to hear a thing you are saying because you are not for me. Excellent answer. Excellent answer. Mike, how do I lose your vote? I think the best way to completely fuck yourself up with me is if if it's very clear and transparent that you have a predetermined agenda and that running for this office should you win is merely a stepping stone to something big or bigger. And so you don't see that in the presidential election, obviously, but in any other election or any other position, you see a lot of that in my mind, where you see people that are obviously positioning for something bigger. And so there, I look at that and say, all right, well, you're going to do a marginal job at best or just do what the majority want you to do so you can continue to move on. And and they're not going to really listen to constituents and listen and try to understand the real problems with the whatever office they're running for. So to me, that's the biggest thing is a very obvious predetermined agenda for future success. 
And that, that, that stepping stone thing is such an important thing. It's such a turnoff because you're like, well, I, I know you don't have interest in this office, but you're, right. you're positioning yourself for another four years. I'm like, those four years are four important years to the rest right. of us. Well, especially we, like the smaller the market, I feel like the smaller the town or municipality, the bigger negative impact that might have too. A hundred percent. Absolutely. It's, it's the weirdest thing. Um, when, I, when I was reflecting on what, to, uh, what to, to talk to you guys about today, I was thinking of one major change that I've seen in the last 20 years is we've morphed uh, politics on a national level, in this country at least, into this otherworldly thing where it's more, it has much more akin to uh, professional sports, I think, than it does <laughs> what, I knew, what I knew politics was growing up where my two grandfathers couldn't have been more different. They voted absolutely opposite every year, but they were like, yeah, that's my guy. Uh, that's your guy. Whatever. They don't, they don't care about, uh, you know, that was their old, the old Italian guy line. They don't give a damn about us anyway, but, I, uh, <laughs> um, but, but we've morphed it into this different thing. And there's, there's now a good and a bad part to it uh, in, in a lot of people's minds. And, and that's why something you said, Francesca was like, well, fear mongering could turn you off. And I'm thinking, well, our version, my version of fear mongering has got to be good though. You know, I want you to be afraid of the climate eroding and, and the planet being, you know, destroyed. But I, if I'm honest, there is an element of fear in there too. Um, do you remember politics being so nasty growing up, Francesca? That's, that's such a good point because even as I was saying fear-mongering loses me, I was thinking about that. <laughs> of course, there's fear-mongering on both sides. Um, I guess it's about demonize. What, what do you demonize in that fear-mongering that really gets to me? You know, are you demonizing yeah. other people? Are you Anyway, I'm getting off topic. <laughs> the question that you asked me was like, do I remember it being basically different or more like the same when I was growing up? I think the very first election I think I could vote in was um, Bush and Gore. I believe it was the Hanging Chats. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So before that, I really didn't pay much attention to politics at all. I remember the first Iraq war um, or the, the, the Gulf war. And I remember my parents feeling a certain kind of way about war and like the, the, the country's role in war. But I don't remember a whole lot of talking about politics in my house or politicians or um, hearing politicians go after each other or anything. I think maybe the meanest thing or the most sensational thing that I have as an early memory in politics is, um, what's his name, not being able to spell potato. Dan Quayle. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That was like the That's not an easy deal. word to spell. I, I don't know. I, let's be honest. That, I'm not the only one and he's not the only one that's messed that up. <laughs> it's, it's something that people stumble over. All Frank, time. spell it right now. Frank. <laughs> Can we get a spell check? I literally have no idea. <laughs> Come on. I just think it's so funny that we've gone from that to... Um, you know, lock her up, Sleepy Joe, accusing people of having dementia as a personality trait, I yeah. guess, now. And it's just kind of crazy how far it's it's gone. And I I think there's a lot to be said for we've lost something um, that we had in the past that, that was more dignified. Um, and I 
I'm so not a poli-sci person. I am not a civics person. So I feel like this is just a lay person talking about what I've seen growing up. Um, I, I think that's refreshing though. Uh, seriously, when we are, there's a constant barrage of people that are, so to speak, in, in this area, or, and that's their, their place of expertise. But it, it's refreshing to hear just regular people talk about stuff like this. Uh, Mike voted in a couple uh, more elections than me. Do you remember this being like a, a thing where, you know, my team is good, your team is bad when you, yeah, were, think, when you were growing up? I think I do. I mean, I think... Um... I think I, you know, I think a lot of it was based on military stuff going on. If I think back to when I was a, a younger kid and before I voted, and then when I first started voting, it, it, a lot of it was military, us versus, you know, Russia and Iran yeah. and, you know, all these different things. And I think there was a lot of the, the debate was about how big should then how strong should the military be and all these different, you know, facets of protecting and kind of being the strong member in the world, uh, world mm -hmm. society so um i i feel like there's always been the two you know the two sides the the good and the bad you know they always want to portray each other i feel like it's always been like that it just yeah. hasn't been as um as ugly and as kind of classless as i think it's yeah kind of eroded to now no that's well said there, there's certainly a lot more money uh being put into keeping these two sides barking at one another we never had we never had 24-hour news uh you know prior to that 2000 election um you know i think it was the first one where it was constant yeah. um so that's 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 a really interesting point now and nick i just want to say because you said something about how it's more like professional sports teams now mm -hmm. and i've been turning that over in my head since you've said that and i think you're I couldn't agree more with that statement that it's more like professional sports team than, than it is politics. And with that, you have to look at how that can actually play out. You have Monday morning quarterbacks in the, on social media that are telling you how they would run the country and how they know everything. And you have, um, you have people that aren't necessarily constituents or, or thoughtful consumers or voters. You have fans and fans are short for fanatics. And yeah. so when people get fanatical about anything, they're going to get so singular in their thinking that they don't allow anything else in. And those slogans and those things that we can hurl at each other become very simple and they are meant to be said loudly. It's, it's supposed to be cowboys suck if you're at an Eagles game. <laughs> we don't need to justify it. We don't need to explain it. You know, um, yeah. We can just say it and shout it at each other and that makes us right. And that's yeah. what I'm seeing a lot of in, in the, the politics of today. Yeah. You know what I've seen a lot of, like especially this summer, but then I also remembered seeing it to a lesser degree four summers ago. Um, we have like a little boat we keep on the Delaware Bay. So we go out with the kids and, and our friends and like tool around and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I see a ton of Trump flags and it's not just in our area. I've seen it on other lakes and other parts of the country. I've seen oh, this yeah. sort of thing. Right. And so I never remember seeing that many flags for a political candidate ever, ever before. And so what we see a lot of in Delaware is, an Eagles flag and then a Trump flag. So when you talk about being like sports fan, that's the first thing my mind went to is that it's right next to it. Like the beloved Eagles and then here comes Trump. And what, what I think about when I see that many flags, hundreds of Trump flags, and then it'll be like an occasional Biden flag <laughs> mixed in there. Um, but in that area, it's like all Trump. And I'm like, I wonder like, do these people actually really know what 
Trump's all about? And is that, are they truly Trump supporters or are they doing it because of the bandwagon effect and that they want to mm-hmm. fit in because they're part of the voting community? Now, if they don't have a Trump flag, now they're not fitting in. And so is this a, a really a truly a political support maneuver or is it a uh, fit, you know, fit in with a cool crowd maneuver? So it's in whichever way it is, I, I'm fine with it, but it's something that crosses my mind every time I'm out there. Well, it's a social phenomenon. I mean, it's such a great point to bring up. It is, it is a social phenomenon, and it's very, like, uh, it's very much like the, this tribalistic mentality that we see. Mm-hmm. Like, in, We use that word a lot in uh, European football. I mean, look at soccer fans and this, this kind of tribal atmosphere. And it is, I think there's something comforting of kind of losing your individuality for a bit and just operating as this this. this ferocious group um, and you just adopt that group think and you, you can turn everything off for 90 minutes but it, it we know that that's that's not the way life works um, if the flyers do make face, a bad do you fa- do you paint your face nick for soccer games and stuff like that well, just away games i don't uh, <laughs> the, the home games <laughs> home games any away ones we make sure we go to a different bar um, but no, it, it's funny because I like the, the fact where you, you said if you had to like engage one of these people and say, do you even know what this person stands for? Uh, that's when you bring the individual into account. And that, that's not what these movements are about. Um, it, it's, it's well, to take the sports analogy further, it's like they watch. Um, Hi, I'm a theater kid. I don't do sports. So excuse any <laughs> misspeaking here. You may have portrayed but, someone who had some sort of athletic inclination at one point. That's true. Um, it's like they watched red zone or like the, the highlights or they listened to WIP instead of actually watching the game. So they, they took away their talking points so that they could go to the water cooler and they could show, show off that they are part of this group and that they're aligned with this group because that's what their friends are doing. And that's what everybody else is doing. So very much the bandwagon effect versus actually knowing the context or what happened or the whole story or the whole game. And you see the same thing with politics. It's like, Oh, Oh, I saw this headline in the last 24 hours. So I'm going to repeat that. And um, that's going to be my, that's going to be the hill I die on. And, and I think that's, uh, that's a great analogy. And I think, and we talked about this, the three of us talked about this before is how many people will read something on Facebook or see a meme. And now that's a credible source of, of information. And, and news and now they're basing the the party's platform based on a meme or something like that i mean it's just always it's incredible or always. or even um satirical posts that people don't look into the sources and think that it's real news <laughs> right. and will share it as though it's real it's fake news. yeah yeah <laughs> I love, it's always the one where they picture ewan mcgregor is obi-wan kenobi and someone says if you love jesus share this photo and you're like <laughs> It's true. I've seen that go around. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me let me get get us into uh, another direction here. It's a it's a similar path we're following, but we're we're certainly going to touch upon the place that we operate every day in the cannabis space. But we can we can keep the parallel here with elections. As far as changing minds goes, what kind of things need to stop? What kind of behaviors need to cease? And and where do we need to look in the mirror and really? make changes if we're going to change people's minds. Francesca, you want to go first? Sure. I think we need to be doing twice as much listening and half as much talking on both sides. That's how you're going to change minds. Um, not, Not sitting quietly waiting for your turn to speak, 
but actually listening to somebody mm -hmm. and then responding to it. Um, the other way I think we can change minds is to normalize being undecided or, or not knowing. So there seems to be credibility, I guess, or status around being rooted in your convictions and your beliefs and knowing what you know and um, defending that no matter what. When I think what is a much better, more, and by better I mean more productive way of having a discourse and thus changing minds is to say, well, that's new information. And um, with that new information, now I need to go do something else with it. I either need to verify that that new information is true. I need to find the context around that new information. I need to understand if um, the source of that. I need to just marinate in it and say, ooh, that actually conflicts with everything else I thought, or yep, that matches everything else I thought, or something along those lines. And think, for the love of God, people, start thinking and stop reacting because there's just so much knee jerking that's going on of, well, that's as soon as somebody says, um, and obviously, I mean, cats out of the bag, I'm obviously a uber liberal Democrat that's going to vote for Biden. So big big fucking surprise. But if somebody is, you know, putting out there like, here's what Trump said, and you're, and then immediately a supporter goes, well, that's not what he said. And if that's what he said, that's not what he meant. Or he meant that joking. And you're like, can we just stop and say, let's talk about the fact of this is what he said. And then be like, oh, well, let's look at the context of that. And let's go from there and learn instead of saying, I'm going to defend my guy and I'm here to stand in front of him, not not behind him. And honestly, the same could be said of me about Biden. It's like if somebody says, this is what he said, and I'm like, well, that's nothing compared to what Trump said. And so it's just constantly this, this clash um, yeah. rather than a discourse. But as soon as I feel like the other side's not going to listen to me, why should I listen to them? Why am I going to give them the courtesy? And so all of that defensiveness is so unproductive and it doesn't change anyone's mind. So we need to stop being defensive. We need to stop having um, shouting matches. We need to learn to listen and we need to, for the love of all that's holy, start thinking critically. That's we, all. we actually ran out of tape. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. another thing about pontificating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I, there are a number of points in there that I, that I, I love, especially this idea that we need to start thinking critically again. Um, and, and, and the idea of listening, how many times have we watched things, and, and, and I mean very recently, I mean within the last five days, where they go to someone with a specific question, and that question, there's no, they don't even begin to track it down. It's like if they asked a cat about what cats are going to do to, you know, stop making things smell like urine, they go, well, can I talk about what the dogs are doing? No, dude, answer your question. <laughs> Answer it's the so question. True. It's so frustrating. I'm sorry to get off on that tangent. Mike. I liked it. Mike, what, what do we need to, what needs to stop if we're going to actually change minds? This is, a, this, as far as how do we change minds, and this is a really broad question. Because, and sure. I was thinking that I had different answers for different parts of society or different things around my head, like for election versus cannabis versus, you know, other things. But I think a lot of it really comes down to the same sort of answer in my head, which is, 
people have to be willing to be open-minded and listening. Like Francesca said, listening and, and being able to understand is, is one thing, but people may listen, but they're not hear, hearing you know, or the other way around. I guess they may hear stuff, but not listen and interpret it and really have the, have the fortitude to question their own beliefs, whether you're 20 years old or 80 years old, you can change your fucking mind people. And it's okay to say, wow, what I was thinking for the last X amount of years may not be exactly right. And you know, there's new, new perspective and new information that's out there. That's helping me to kind of, you know, edit my thinking and to think in a different capacity and, and, and to think more broadly. And as Francesca said, to think critically and it's okay to be, to second guess yourself and to be wrong and to, and to have a new perspective based on new information or in just maybe a mature viewpoint on something. And I, and I think for me, that's something that, um, that I've learned a lot from the two of you, which is, you know, different perspectives on stuff, um, you know, and I'll use the the Colin Kaepernick one because it's kind of back in the news again now. And four years ago, whenever it was, I was really upset about the whole Colin Kaepernick thing for, for a number of different reasons. And then as I've come full circle on it, as new information and new perspective has been in new, uh, in uh, new news, uh, new stories have come out about why he was doing what he's doing and then reasonings and it's helped me to understand what he was doing. And I can honestly go back and say, yeah, I have a different viewpoint of it now because I have, I've talked to more people, I've gotten more insights and that's helped me to, to change my mind. And, but I wouldn't have changed my mind if I didn't have the confidence in being able to do so and be able to admit that I was wrong. And maybe there's a new answer out there. That's better. That's a better fit for me and better fit for society for that matter. And so I think, I guess where I'm going with this is that, people have to be able to, to listen to information and viewpoints and perspectives, but then also have the confidence to say, I'm going to change my mind and, and not worry about what their friends may think or, or what their group of voter friends may think about what they're doing. Yeah. Mike, you know, I love that you use that example because it's, it's such a good one where conversations turn into arguments unnecessarily most of the time. And so people are just there defending instead of listening and being like, oh, well, did you know this? And it's like, well, no, I didn't, but I'm going to stick with what I believed anyway, instead of, no, I didn't. Now I have something else to think about and that can change my mind. And we're not weak when we change our minds. And I remember when um, John Kerry lost in the presidential election. And I remember the biggest... Um, criticism of him was that he was a flip-flopper. He was a flip-flopper because he changed his mind on God knows what. I don't, I don't know what it was. But that was like a dig at him. And suddenly anyone who changed their mind was labeled something that was negative. Instead of being like, changing your mind shows, like you said, Mike, maturity and thoughtfulness and critical thinking. I mean, I liked stuff four years ago that I don't like now and vice versa. That shouldn't, that should be, a good thing. <laughs> That's yeah, what, a, what, a, what an arrogant concept to think that what you know today is a hundred percent correct and it can never evolve and you can never have a different perspective that might oh, be yeah. better in the future. I mean, what the fuck is that kind of yes! thing? Yes. Honestly, <laughs> it's it was, when the evidence changes, I can't stress this enough. It's okay to change your mind. And I don't know why that's, that's, I don't know why there's a, a bit of embarrassment there, but it, it, it's, it's kind of a staple, uh, a fundamental flaw of our humanity. I, I'll give you one. Uh, we go all the way back to um, New England, the Salem Witch Trials. Guy goes in and in, in, uh, interviews uh, 
I don't know what you want to call it. The guy's name was Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather was a doctor and he happened to be a, a, a very, very vicious, fiery Puritan preacher. He interviews these little girls in Salem, Massachusetts. This is the, the expert. This is the Dr. Fauci when it comes to witchcraft. And he, we have it in writing. We have it in writing. You can go see it. Cotton Mather says, these girls couldn't possibly be, I forget what, what word he used to mean faking. I forget what the word was. He put it in writing. A couple months go by and he's like, oh, shit. <laughs> and he has to start thinking outside the box. He's a doctor already. He starts looking into this process called inoculation. The guy figures everything out about the smallpox crisis. We thought smallpox was the devil because he had thought that Salem was the devil. He changed his mind. He, the, the evidence changed for him. Uh, you better not run for office. I can tell you that. <laughs> He's totally have, screwed. And even, <laughs> and even that, Nick, I've heard different explanations of the Salem witch trial and like different things because we don't know what started the, oh. the craze still. And oh. so that's such a good But example. I mean, you know, he put his name down on that. And so he went right back to the well and said, you know, the, the smallpox crisis in New England was, uh, the, was Satan because what the hell? We, we can't fix that. But, you know, he may have saved New England because he changed his goddamn mind, pun intended. Him um, and Tom Brady, the <laughs> saviors of New England. Well, yeah, yeah. Disagree. And, and On the record. Of, <laughs> and a lot of information they may have gotten through other sources. No, um, so I wanted to throw this one at you, not to get too lost in historical references here, but I, I got to thinking about changing minds and, and elections. And I thought of a thing I used to teach when I was a teacher uh, for effective speaking and writing. I used to teach uh, John F. Kennedy's uh, inaugural address as a, uh, as a really fine example of rhetoric. And, and we had to examine what his purpose was. And, and Kennedy won by the slimmest of margins in, in that uh, election. So in January of 61, when he goes up to that pulpit on that cold morning, he did so knowing that a ton of Americans disagreed with him being the choice to lead the country. So what did he do? Well, you read the words of that, of that speech. It's 17 minutes of trying to engage the people that disagree with him. And one of the things he's doing is, you know, we'll go back to your term, Francesca. He's not yelling. He's not shouting. He's not fear-mongering. Um, he's respecting the idea that people could disagree with him and saying, I still want to engage you and I want to tell you that, you know, this is, this is the way I'm going to try to lead for you. Have we just totally lost the plot when it comes to engagement? How can we improve the way we engage people that disagree with us? Do you think Mike? Oh, in terms of engaging people that disagree, I think, I think that it really comes down to a mutual respect and, and being able to, like we said earlier, being able to listen and demonstrate that you're genuinely listening and not just, you know, a peripheral or just real surface level listening and, and not doing anything about it. So, you know, in terms of the candidates doing that, I think that Kennedy's move is beautiful in terms of getting in there and trying to be the leader to bring all the, the the citizens together and to move forward and to feel good about what the next steps are going to be. And I, and I think that's what's going to happen. It needs to happen, whether it happens or not, I don't know or how effective it will be because I think 
it's very polarizing. These are the political, at least for the U.S. presidential elections, are so polarizing for some people that I, you know, I personally know people that when, when you know their candidate lost four years ago, they went in a dark hole and they had you know basically dealt with a, you know, basically depression because they were so distraught over what the com- country might become under the under Trump when he won four years ago. And so people deal with this stuff in a different way, and it, it's nearly impossible for any whoever wins the election to to really bring everybody together and have some big after party where everybody's feeling good about it. Right. I mean, but, but it's, it's, it's up to us individually to figure out how we're going to move ahead because it doesn't do any good to, to lay in your room and sulk. I mean, get up, put your pants on, go to work and keep, keep driving ahead and protect yourself and your family and your business and do those things that you need to do to continue to, to live a happy life. It's a really important point. What do we do when the outcome doesn't go our way? When, when we don't get the W, when we don't get the win, we don't win an argument, we don't win a, d- a debate, um, whatever that last debate was. We don't win an election. Francesca, what do you do? You have to adapt. Um, if you're on the losing side, you have to adapt. And I would say that... Um, what Mike described as, you know, when, when Trump won and some people got into a, a depression and a, and a dark place, I can absolutely say that I was, I was in a dark place initially. And then you don't stay there because that's not going to benefit anybody. It's not going to benefit the country as a whole. It's not going to benefit me individually or you individually. It's not going to benefit your small life, you know, the, the life that you live and the community that you exist in. Um, so you have to adapt and decide what kind of participation you want to have in the country as it is um, when we're talking about the presidential election. So it, and if we take it out to include cannabis as well, you have to do the same thing. You know, we, when you have something, a ballot not pass and it doesn't, you know, you're not a legal state for cannabis, you've lost that fight. What are you going to do? Well, I don't think the answer for me personally is to roll over and play dead and just get let the current come and, and catch you and flow along with it because that doesn't, you haven't changed. You know, you haven't changed unless obviously something else has, but it's about now you have a new reality. It's not the reality you were in before where there was a choice. The choice has been made. So what is your next choice in the new reality? Is it to continue your fight? Is it to um, accept the loss and find a different fight or a different way to fight? What is it? So I can, I think a lot of it has to do with who, who is on the losing end is very much it's a personal thing because as a as a white female in this country if my candidate loses that means one thing for me but for a black male a black female an immigrant um, somebody from the lgbtq community it means a completely different thing um it's it's potentially far more threatening and or scary um and i can't speak to what it means for trump supporters if biden wins but i imagine that there's fear there too i don't know what that is because i'm not on that side but what do you do with that fear and and how do you fight to make sure that there is security in the ideal of america or the the idealistic america and the country then 
the reality of it. Um, I don't feel like I'm articulating that very well, well but I, I want to hold you guys both to, to cannabis for a second, because yeah. let, let's, let's have some fun with something we messed with you with uh, last time. Cannabis feels like for years and years, we were engaged in the long defeat. Uh, and again, I, I stole that from Lord of the Rings, but, but it, it really did feel that way. Now we have a series of little wins and, and I, I don't mean to belittle them at all. I mean, they're big wins. What's going on. Um, but I do, if I have to be honest with, with myself, I, there's a bit of arrogance in our community where mm-hmm. it comes down to, if you don't agree with us, you're just fucking backwards or mm-hmm. you, 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 and, and I think we need to address that. It, it's a big problem. Um, but just because we've accepted cannabis is, is a good, healthy thing for a number, uh, a number of reasons. Um, not everybody agrees with us. So getting back to that point about engagement, I think we have to change everything. And, and, and cannabis people need to be the first ones to really accept that. We need to change the way we engage with people that disagree with us. And that you, you both sent me uh, to Dover a couple years ago to go and, and engage with people that didn't agree that Delaware should go rec legal or make improvements to its medical program. And that was one of the most learning, uh, that, that was a big learning opportunity. I'll tell you what, it wasn't because of the people that disagreed with me. It was because I was a little bit shocked about the behavior of the people that agree with me and, and the way they chose to engage things. Or is, is the cannabis community kind of picking and choosing their battles the wrong way, Mike? Are we, are we not engaging uh, the people that don't agree with us? I don't know if I'm really in a good position to assess, you know, this, what's working and what's not working, you know, mm-hmm. in every different scenario. I, I know there's a lot of pushback from people that I talk with and that a lot of the real um, issue that people have from adopting the viability of cannabis as a legitimate uh, solution in, in medical solution Mm-hmm. is because there's not really a ton of, of clinical tests and improving medical successes because of cannabis. So much of what they claim is that it's, it's much, much of it's anecdotal. Okay. And so I think that if, as time goes on and whether this is cannabis or CBD, we're talking about, um, you know, in terms of THC or CBD solutions that people are looking at to help their, their lives, the more medical and, proof and clinical testing that's out there, the, the harder it is for people to deny the viability of this as a legitimate medical solution. And once they can't deny it, then they can't hide from it. And they're going to have to confront the constituents who are going to demand that they legalize. And then that will, I think, cause the chain reaction of, of you know, cities and towns be, becoming pro-cannabis. And then that will lead to states becoming pro-cannabis. And then that's, you know, I think part of the chain reaction that goes federal. And so, but I, in my mind, I think a lot of the pushback that I hear people who are, who are not, who haven't adopted is because the lack of uh, broad medical research. Like medical clinical evidence is certainly something we think that could put a huge dent, if not just get rid of that, that stigma altogether, because then we have something tangible, right? Right. We have something we can just, it's published, it's here, look at who worked on it. This isn't just my cousin Rudy says his back doesn't hurt as much after, you know, a Saturday night. Right. That's, that's certainly something we need in our, our tool chest, I think, in order to, to strip down this cannabis uh, stigma. 
Francesca, is there something in the space that you think needs to be addressed uh, that, that could really help us chip away at a near century old stigma? I think there's a lot that we can address to chip away the century old stigma. Um, but one of the things that you brought up initially, Nick, was the arrogance of the community that's in the community. And I've definitely experienced that as well. You know, it feels like we have um, almost like an, an exclusive little club of people that know what you don't know about cannabis. We know <laughs> that it's good. We know that it's healthy. We know that it's beneficial and not illicit and not this and not that, um, that everybody has, you know, everybody else, the others say that it is. So I think we need to drop the arrogance and I think we need to um, stop shouting into an echo chamber of our own community, because that's what I see a lot of people being hailed in the cannabis community by the cannabis community, but never actually affecting change outside of that. Um, so I think the best thing to do is to go and talk to the people that aren't pro cannabis and listen more than you talk and then give them what they need to help them change their minds. Because I can tell you that there is not one person I have met that is anti-cannabis, that is anti-cannabis and is doing it to hurt others. There's nobody, nobody. They all think that they're right too. So listen to them and say, well, what is it that makes you think you're right? Is it because um, you're scared of what it, is, means for kids? Is it because of this or that? And then address those specific needs because they, there's some legitimacy to them, or at least there's a lot of authentic feeling behind them. And so yeah. we have to respect others, like Mike was saying, by, by listening to those people and then addressing them specifically. But the more we talk to each other and the more we, we backpat and say, yeah, you're right. It is the best. And I'm right. And I'm the best. The, the less anybody's going to listen. Yeah. It's, it's the way you, it's the way you, it's the only way we learn. I, yeah. I think sitting down with people and saying, I, I need to understand what your problems are or what your issues are with cannabis. And then maybe we can have a good conversation at some point. And there's such a, chatting. yeah, and there's such a difference between, Hey, what are your issues? And Hey, <laughs> what are your issues? You there's a, a huge difference. There is. <laughs> so there is. yeah. And, and especially as one where the one betrays, the idea that I want to learn and I want to get to know your, your point of view versus here comes my agenda and you better be ready for it. Um, I think we've proven that we can talk about uh, issues and discuss them in a civil fashion. Um, I was wondering if the two of you had some time for a couple of questions. They don't have anything to do with uh, cannabis. Change Let it lives. rip. Let's go. All right. <laughs> Mike, what turns you on? creatively <laughs> i'm so glad he got this first <laughs> so everyone knows like we don't know these last questions nick, nick keeps these to himself so that's <laughs> this this makes it kind of fun for us too um 
creatively, I think, because I, I, you know, it's kind of funny, like a lot of what I do is not creative at all. It's very like spreadsheety and, you know, stuff like that or process oriented sales process, marketing process. But there's times when I, I really do love the creative side. I mean, my undergrad degree was in marketing. So I love to think through different things and um, come up with different ideas for how to reach and convert people, you know, to, to the products we're selling. So wow, that's a good question. Like the thing I think I like the most is really seeing something that's like just different that we've never done before, whether it's a, a social media campaign or an infographic or something like that, like a, an idea that turns into reality. And then if you see the reality turn into getting results, say through click rates or conversions or things like that, if you see that have impact on people and that people like the, the work you've done, um, that to me is the, is the most satisfying thing that about all the, the creative side of it is seeing the impact it can have and, and saying like this idea I had, it might be complete bullshit, but wow, it worked out and people love it. So I think that's, that's what really turns me on most about being creative. Excellent. Francesca, same question. What turns you on in the creative sense? Play, any kind of play and especially pretend. Um, <laughs> if I can have permission to just dream and talk in a friend of mine said um she put it perfectly with permission to speak in first draft and that's what i want i want permission to be like i'm going to say everything and there's zero judgment here we're just getting it out and then if we can take something and imagine what that could be like and then play it out and build characters out of that or a setting out of that or just a whole universe I love that stuff. That's what gets me so turned on is like, I want to pretend like this is the biggest talk show in the universe. And then I get to be whoever I want to be on that talk show. And it, it lets me, I don't know, get into a different frame of mind that isn't reality. Cause I think um, insecurity is a major killer of creativity for me. And that's, that's what reality holds, but pretend pff, I can be anything I want. Wait, this isn't the biggest talk show? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe both, by the time people are hearing it, not when we're recording. Both, both followers said it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And both of them got our, my cards that I sent out. Mike, what, Mike, what's the thing that turns you off? When you hear it, you just say, mm-mm, shut down. Wow, this is a tough one. Now. Where the f where'd you get these questions, Nick? God. A guy named Bernard Pivot. So they're called the, the Pivo Questionnaire. Wow. What, <laughs> what shuts me down? I think, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can answer this one. I think you guys can probably answer it for me better than I can answer it for me. Because um, I shut down. I don't remember it. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to have to take a pass on this one. Okay. That's fine. You know an that's answer fine. for me? What do you we think can, it is? Uh, we didn't start the I, phone a friend options, but I you think, can do it, Francesca. I, oh, I, I definitely can. Phone a friend. <laughs> I think what shuts Mike down is anything that's overwhelming. If, if you get overwhelmed with whether that's options or uh, work on it, all right. shut down. Yeah. If I have too many balls in the air, that's, that, I, I think gonna, that's it. I was going to use that, that metaphor. That will do it. 
That's that will good. absolutely do it. The guy's got so much going on. Yeah. Meltdown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I always like to do this too, uh, for keeping in this, uh, if, if I can, I'd like to bring in uh, r- quickly for the end here so we can say hi. Uh, the man who knows where Carmen Sandiego is at all times, uh, Frankie <laughs> Fifth Year. Are you there, Frank? Hello, hello. How are you, buddy? Good. How are you guys? We're doing good. okay. We're doing okay today. Thanks for everything you're doing on the other end. Uh, Frank, I, I want to know something about your, your uh, past. What's the most expensive thing you've ever broken? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> expensive thing I've ever broken. Um, Come on. You're a, you, you kicked a football very well for a number of years. I got to believe that at the Rago house, there was something. No, window. you, no windows have been broken. Uh, thank God. So um, do, does a car count? Yeah. A car is pretty expensive. Most of them are. Yeah. yeah. Francesca, what's the most expensive thing you ever broke? Um, I don't know if it was the most expensive, but it was one of the biggest. I, knocked down a whole mannequin display in a Sears one day in a full shopping (laughs) mall. I decided to help the mannequin out because her foot, like the heel of her foot was out of the heel of her shoe. And I thought that was wrong. And so I tried to lift the shoe to her foot and it was bolted to the floor. That didn't clue me in. So I grabbed her ankle and I put her heel in her shoe and the whole thing came crashing down. And that was probably- no. <laughs> How old were you when this happened? I was well, probably seven or eight. <laughs> okay. All right. I, yeah. thought that, I didn't know if this was like recently or, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to get some context here. It sounds like a goddamn cartoon. The trouble yeah. with mannequins. I'll tell you, you're lucky it didn't happen recently. Otherwise, there'd be security footage of this mishap. <laughs> Big time. Yes. Big time. Might you ever break anything incredibly expensive? No, nah, not really. I mean, knock on wood, so far, like the most expensive thing I've broken is my phone about every time I get a new phone, it's, the screen breaks within minutes. Uh, but other than that, it's, I haven't, I've been pretty lucky as far as not damaging too much stuff. Francesca, mm-hmm. sound or noise that you love? Well, to be seasonally appropriate, um, the crunching of leaves when you're walking in them, but also the sound of um, skates on ice, like in oh, ice hockey games. I love that soothing, sound. Very soothing sound. Fifth year, is there a sound or noise that you love? Uh, crowd noise. You know, we're right in the middle of football season, and sadly we can't really see people in the stadium, but even what they pump in that crowd noise, like it just gets me going, makes me relive my football days. Oh, nice. Nice. Mike, do we have a sound or noise that you absolutely love? Ocean waves hitting the shore. Ocean waves. Yep. So, so peaceful. Might be the rain. Calming thing. Rain. Gotta go with it. So, Francesca, do you sleep to white noise? Like, do you have ice skating white noise that you sleep to or anything? No. If anything, I'll put my earbuds in and put a true crime podcast on, and I'll fall asleep to the soothing sounds of the story of the Golden State Killer breaking into homes and, Uh, you know. That's so scary. It's awful. (laughs) Unbelievable. Unbelievable. (laughs) Uh, And it is going around the horn one more time. Mike, is there a sound or noise that you hate? You know, it's like the chalkboard is the obvious one for that one. But um, like, here's a good, here's the one I think I hate the most. And my wife, Karen, 
when this happens, she I, she shoots daggers at me. <laughs> it's when my knife and fork scrape on a plate when I'm cutting like food. Oh yeah, that scraping noise. Oh yeah, and for some reason, like I do it a lot, <laughs> and Karen gets pissed. Wait, that's Karen's noise that she hates. Do you yeah, hate it as no, much? I, I don't or like do you it hate either. that she hates it? It's both. It's a double whammy. <laughs> I don't like the noise, and then I'm always like, yeah. I'm in trouble. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one because it's not like we sit down to do that. Like, here, let me. Yeah, it's a total accident. And then sometimes food goes off the plate yeah. when that happens, like a slide. And it's like a, it's never good, man. Francesca, <laughs> sound or noise you hate? I cannot stand. Um, the sound of garbage trucks picking up dumpsters. <laughs> yeah. I hate it. It's a very so urban problem. Very much. Oh God, it drives me. All- and it, it goes on forever. It goes on because they have to, they make a noise when they pull up and stop, when they lower the thing, when they pick up the thing, when they bang it over, when they put, I, it, yeah. it's rage. Especially it's- at 6 a.m., huh? Yeah. Six? What do they it's- sleep in? <laughs> it's more like four. Oh, it's a, it, it's just like when I hear a leaf blower, uh, those things, I, I hate them with a passion. It is the, the epitome of here, you deal with this. Uh, it, it's, oh God, those things. Does those it get things in your are, head that somebody's blowing leaves into your property, Nick? Is that why you don't like it? Um, I, I think it's because my property is located near a couple of parks and park and parks, parks and rec is, is there a couple times a week. And then the shopping center has their leaf blowers. So I think the whole unionized circuit of leaf blowers is very active <laughs> around my house in particular. Yeah. And I can't stand it. Uh, Frank, tell me about a sound or a noise that you absolutely hate. Well, I don't know if you guys know this, but I love cars. I love the car industry. I could probably name you every car on the highway, but there's something that pisses me off <laughs> in the car industry is when somebody revs their Honda Civic or Hyundai like they're spitting flames at a residential area. Like, what are you doing? You're pissing everybody off. You're waking everybody up. Like, if you're spitting flames, you better be driving a Lamborghini or a Ferrari. Like, it doesn't make sense if you pull up next to me in in a Civic and you're shooting flames doing donuts. It's the most annoying thing ever. I'm with you, Frank, 100%. Both the fifth year. Never more with that shit. We got to stop that. <laughs> the, um, I, I got to say, this is kind of cool. Uh, I, I, I'm looking back on everything we talked about, and it, it's a bit of a diversion uh, or a bit of a deviation from what we normally do. There's cannabis was there and hovering all over it. But man, we, we talked about we need to change the words we use. We need to change the way we listen, the way we speak. Uh, we need to really monitor our online behavior and, and help. I have to think at the end of the day, we're living through a, a really strange time period with, with this election and this, this, this pursuit of changing minds. But if we, if we can learn something healthy uh, through it, I'll take that at the end of the day. I really will. So well I, I want to yeah. thank you both uh, for the opportunity to do this, for the opportunity to work on Infused. I asked those questions about your creative process on, on uh on purpose, of course, uh, because I do greatly admire when the two of you kind of get those brains going and then the rest of the team is like, holy shit, you came up with what? We're going where? <laughs> We're doing what now? So it was an attempt for, for Frank and I to get to, uh, to learn a little bit more about that. So thanks for your candor. Thanks for being on here. Um, please 
Subscribe to Infused. Check us out. Check us out at aliascan.com. Follow our social accounts on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter. And please join us for December. The next time we see you, the election will be... (laughs) We're going to see you around the holiday season. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time from Delahue, Delawat, Delaware. Bye now. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.